Welcome to Harvest Bible Church. My name is Rob Bishop. Our beloved pastor has been leading us through um, church history, right? And it's been fantastic from uh, Pentecost to the Reformation, I think, is where we're, we're at. John Calvin and um, uh, John Knox and so forth. And so what do we see in church history? What have we seen thus far? A bunch of messed up people, since I'm recording this. Yes, um, yes. Um, uh, so yes, it, um, a bunch of messed up people. And um, it's it, some... some uh, as Lance said last week, even embarrassing, right? Some of the stuff is even embarrassing. Um, there's, uh, there's sorrow, there's sadness, there's suffering, there's imprisonment, there's beating. Um, there's those who've been burned at the stake um, and just outright suffering. And so we, we see that. And how does one persevere? How does one persevere through such suffering? And do we have that suffering today? Is that going on in, in the church today, by the way? In other countries, absolutely. Um, you know, in North Korea, um, I read recently that some 70% of the Christians are being persecuted. In China, in Nigeria, in other parts of the country. Just this week, maybe you saw that there was um, uh, a seminary student in Nigeria. Did you, did you read that? That his house was burned down and he was in it. Um, and so he was a martyr. So um, we see that um, suffering is, uh, is part of the Christian experience. It's part of the, part of the faith. Um, and it's something that we're, we're uh, not all that accustomed to here um, in the United States, praise God, but could happen and could happen at any time, really. So what I thought we would do tonight, we're not going to do history per se. We're going to take an interlude, if you will. We're going to do an interlude, um, and we're going to look at, um, not that, this. Wait, what is the church? So what is the church? What constitutes the church? And um, is it just this building it's gathering of believers, and what are believers? So that we're going to answer some of those questions, and we're going to we're going to um, dig into some some doctrine of how one becomes the church, um, and we're going to. Uh, if you br- you brought your Bible, great. I know you haven't been, but if you have, but if you haven't brought your Bible, it's okay. I'll have it the scripture up on. Uh, the projector, thank you, up on the projector. <laughs> I'm not used to teaching at night. It's been a long day already. So anyway, so what we're going to do, we're going to look at First Peter. So where is First Peter? First um, Peter is, it's in the Bible. It's in the, right next to Second Peter. Don't go too far. You go to Third Peter. Now there's no Third Peter. Um, it's uh, it's one of the general epistles. It's one of the general letters. The way that I find it in the Bible is that um, you go to Hebrews, take a right James, and then woo, there you are, First Peter. So we're going to look at First Peter, and First Peter is um, an excellent, awesome, profound book, and um, it was one that was written by Simon Peter. And we're going to talk a little bit about him near the end of his life. In fact, he was, um, it was said that two to three years after that he had written this book, that he was martyred. Anybody know how he was martyred? Crucified upside down. down. That is exactly right. At his request. Wow. Man, oh man. Very good. So it's around uh, 46. 64 to 67 AD, it's a general epistle to strengthen and embolden the Christians who were under persecution under Nero. Nero was a madman, right? He, and he, he burned down the city so he could build it back up. And he was the one that fiddled while Rome burned. And then he was the one that blamed the Christians that they were going to be scapegoats. And so it's in what he, the code word is Babylon. Those of you who have been in Todd and I's Genesis class, we just talked about Babylon in the table of nations, the table of nations. Who was the father of Babylon? Anybody know? This is a gold star. Nimrod, and so he was the first one that built the kingdom, and it was Babylon, and it is a bastion of idolatrous culture, and so that was the same thing. That's what, that's what Peter is saying, and throughout the epistle, 
If you read the epistle, I encourage you to do so. It's only five chapters, and it is chock full of Old Testament allusions. And right there, he's alluding back to Babylon and, yes, even Nimrod. So why did he write the book to encourage uh, and even rejoice in our salvation? So we rejoice in our salvation, but also our suffering. And it's one of the, the best books on the Christology Ology, study of Christ, and the true grace found therein. And so Christ's life, he was sinless. He suffered an undeserved crucifixion. He, he atoned for sin. He resurrected from the dead, which he vindicated his deity. He ascended into heaven. He reigns at the right hand of God the Father as God and with God. And he will come again. But he is also, he's not only our Lord, but he is the pattern for our life. So not just the object of our faith, but he's the pattern of our Christian destiny. And part of that Christian destiny can include suffering. And so that's why he penned the book. So it's not a strange thing that one day we will suffer, or maybe we are suffering. Um, but it's, it's not a strange thing. It's something that will happen. It's part of our experience. And so how do we do it? How do we suffer well? How do we persevere? How do we have hope? And the only way we can do that is through the church. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about what is the church. So you're in, you're in luck. We only got two verses, so we'll be out of here in about 12 minutes. <laughs> Lance is going to love this. All right, we let him out at 7.15. Is that okay? This is, this is chock full. This is rich, okay? Um, and it's beautiful. Um, this is absolutely beautiful scripture, okay? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pont- Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctification of the Spirit, For obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for this Wednesday night. And Father, we thank you for this scripture before us. Father, help us right now unpack this, this beautiful doctrine of what you have done and how you have your church, your redeemed people. And may we give glory, may this time be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' holy name, amen. All right, so, verse 1, the first word is Peter. Who's Peter? Is he a big shot? He's a fish, yeah, you've seen my notes. (laughs) He is a fisherman. Yes, he's a fisherman, and his brother's Andrew, and he was married. How about that? Um, He was originally, his name was Simon in Greek or Simeon in Hebrew. Peter means Petros, little rock. He is mentioned 151 times. I counted it. 151 times in the New Testament. Is that a lot? Who, Who has been mentioned more times in the New Testament other than Yeah, it's a Sunday school answer. Always go with Jesus. I counted 155 for Paul, but his brother Andrew, 12, Matthew, 5, Philip's 33, and John, 132. So, it's a lot. That's the point, right? And so, he's one of Jesus' inner three. He's usually the first disciple mentioned. He witnessed miracles, healings, the transfiguration, big time, big deal. And he also, the resurrected Christ. It's noted that at least twice in the um, New Testament that he um, saw the risen Christ. And so, why is there so much about Peter? Anybody want to venture a guess? He always got his foot in his mouth. Just like us, right? Right? Yes. I just Don. remember, I can't remember why Jesus said this to him, but I remember Jesus said that you're the rock upon which my church will be. Oh. Excellent, excellent point. Yeah, I mean, he's a big deal. 
I mean, he, he is. But the thing, the thing that the point that I wanted to make tonight is that perhaps God knows he is a disciple that many of us can identify with. And, and so we've got some examples here. I, I feel like I can. Number one, Luke, Luke 5, he, he complained. Anybody ever complained? Um, there's no fish. And so Jesus shows up and says, throw it on the other side. And then he has too many fish. And then what does he do? He worships. He complains and then he worships. And that was actually when he started following Christ. Matthew 16, he professed Christ's lordship. This is at Caesarea Philippi. And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Christ rebuked him for his wrong perspective. He said, get behind me, Satan. John 13, 8. He was cleansed. This is the washing of the feet where, where Christ was washing the disciples' feet. And he said, no, I don't, I don't want my feet washed. He says, wash my whole body. And um, Jesus said, no, I must do this. And he was confused by the whole scenario. Have we ever been? Um, John thirteen thirty six. he had a zeal in his profession. He said he would lay down his life for Christ, but he was also weak because not much later, Jesus said, truly, truly, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So then Matthew 26, he had misplaced courage. This is where he lops off the ear of the high priest Malachus, um, well, his servant anyway. And, um, and um, so Jesus heals that flesh wound, and um, he says, do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will not act at once and send a legion of angels. This happens so the scriptures will be fulfilled. And so Peter was concerned that Jesus was going away and he had this temporal um, concern about things. Perhaps we do too. So in Mark 16, verse 6, he was inconsistent in his faith. He was inconsistent in his faith because after the res- this is after the resurrection that, and uh, the angel said, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen, but go tell the disciples and Peter, and Peter, not any of the others, but Peter, that he's going to Galilee. There you will find him. But the beautiful thing is, yet he is still a disciple. And then lastly, this, this kind of a crazy story, and uh, it's John 21, right? And this is where... Um, Peter wavers. So Christ has been resurrected from the grave. And then this whole time after he has been walking with Christ, watching the prophecies being fulfilled, seeing the resurrected Christ at least twice, he says, just like Lance, I'm going fishing, right? No, he's going, that's a joke, by the way. And so he's going, he's going fishing. That means he's going back to his old life. And so this is the great, great apostle Peter, right? And then when, when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, shows up and they catch fish, he jumps in the water. And then we have this, um, this famous uh, discourse where Jesus says, do you love me? And he says it three times, feed my sheep, three different times. Then Peter becomes a lion of the faith, right, after Pentecost. So what is the principle here? The church, remember that the topic is the church. The church oftentimes complains, has wrong perspectives, is confused or weak or inconsistent, or even wavers, yet are still Christ's disciples. So the point is, this is, this is how we are. But there's something, so we're like Peter, and Peter is like us, but Peter is unlike us. Because the next, or the third word, is apostle, right? And apostles have authority. They are messengers who saw the risen Christ, whose teachings are foundational to the church. So this is, he is an apostle. He was credited with the Gospel of Mark. Some people, some scholars call it the memoir of Peter, So he was the first apostle called, the first among the apostles, the first apostle to recognize Jesus as Messiah, first apostle to proclaim salvation to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 1. And so scripture says in Acts chapter 2, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, Ephesians chapter 2. But 
You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's kind of one of the themes of the book of uh, 1 Peter as well, that Christ is the cornerstone. So the principle, again, the church upholds the apostolic teachings. The real church upholds the apostolic teachings. Then, then here we, now here the rubber meets the road, all right? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect, who are chosen. So who is this epistle written to? To believers only, right? That's one of the misconceptions. People open up the Bible and they think it's written to them. No, it's not. It's, it's written to the elect, those who are the elect. And who are those, the, uh, the elect? Those who are chosen. It is the doctrine of election. Here we go. It's the salvation of the divine act of grace. That's God's unmerited favor, right? And this is one of the doctrines that um, is one of the most hated in all of Scripture, this sovereign election. This is... And that's A.W. Pink says that it is one that is a loathed doctrine by many who call themselves Christians. They have a hard time wrapping their head around this, but it is absolutely fundamental to us because the elect are chosen. It's synonymous. It's the same thing as being a Christian, as being saved and being born again. In fact, the word chosen is mentioned 115 times in the Bible. Abraham is chosen. Those in our Genesis class, we went through it on Sunday night through the table of nations and that through the line of Shem, it was split off at Eber, which means Hebrew, and it was split off the line of Jochum. His son Jochum went to the Tower of Babel, which is the non-elect. Those are judged. And that um, those who went through Peleg, Peleg means division, that is the line of the elect, that lead to Abraham, or Abram at that time, and who was a a cult-worshipping pagan at that point. Um, But God had chosen Abraham, Abram at that point, um, to be the father of all nations, yet his wife was barren. It's unbelievable, the story of God and how he works through his own. So he chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Zerubbabel, Israel, Christ, Apostles, Paul, and us, the church. Amen? So John MacArthur said, what is the doctrine of election? God has chosen who he will save and made the choice uninfluenced and unaided by anyone before there was a world. Think about that. Before there was a world, a creation, or humans, or humans, or creation, Before creation, God by his own will and own determination without influence by any other determined to save certain people who would constitute a redeemed humanity who would spend forever in his presence worshiping him, glorifying and exalting his son. So it's absolutely a beautiful, unrequited, beautiful doctrine once you grasp it. So God made the choice not us. And a bunch of scripture verses there that we could look at. But the point is, is from start to finish in the Bible, God is sovereign. And sovereign as such, he's sovereign to choose who is going to his heaven, right? Lance Waldy, our beloved pastor Lance, said, he's got to be careful what he says because I write these things down and I looked it up. So, Cannot call yourself a Christian and not believe in the doctrine of election. Lance Waldy, when he was teaching on Mark 13, 20 through 27, which happens to be the Olivet Discourse, and how can he say such a thing? Well, because Jesus said it, right? And unless the Lord had shortened these days, he's talking about the tribulation here. Um, he's talking about the seven-year tribulation. No life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose he shortened the days. So Christ is talking about those that he chose. In John 17, when he's uh, having the inner Trinitarian prayer with his father, it's, he prays for those whom he has given. God has given him. 
And so we, the church, we talk about the church. The church is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim in the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is this is First Peter. I mean, this this book is incredible. So wait, if if we're chosen and God is sovereign, why should we do evangelism? Because He says to. Because. Those he has elected will be. Amen. Carol gets a gold star. Um, that was excellent. Zach. Romans, Romans, if I'm not mistaken, it's Romans 11. How would, how would they come to faith unless they hear? Faith comes by hearing. Excellent, excellent. Man, oh man. That, that's one of the intimidating things of teaching here at Harvest Bible Church. Um, no, it's great. That's right. Because think about this. All saints were, well, all saints were elect and unsaved at one point. Noodle that for a minute, right? So being elect and being saved are two different things, right? So you can be elect and not be saved. Yes, because he's elected us before there was anything. That's right, Sharon. Amen. When we're born, we're, we're sinners. That's right. That's right. Paul's the perfect There you go. Paul's a perfect example. And it's like when, when people visit the church, you know, I still always think of Easter, right? And when a lot of people come and it's beautiful and they may be the elect. We don't know. What do we know? And we're supposed to, we're, we're supposed to be sharing the gospel with them and let God do his work. But that's why we evangelize because we don't know who the elect are and who's not the elect because you can be the elect and not yet saved. So, but wait, th- that's not fair. This election thing's not fair, is it? Yeah, if it was fair, we'd all go to hell. Yeah, I mean, you already stole my bullet points, so we'll just whip through this. Um, um, But it's okay. But some do have a hard time with that. And if there is someone here, it is okay if you're struggling with it. I mean, uh, many of us have come out of other churches. Um, Some of us, like myself, have been kicked out teaching of other churches, teaching the doctrine of election. Um, But um, uh, the whole idea of fair and unfair, we've got to be real careful about that when we're dealing with God because God is never to be judged by human standard. Because remember, um, Spurgeon said there is a prejudice in the human mind against the sovereignty of God. We want to be our own little king, right? And so um, we have to be, be careful because we're looking at it with our own fallen human standard of fairness, um, so we've got so we to be careful because Isaiah 55, this is Yahweh speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways are my ways, declares Yahweh when it's all, in all caps. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So if we think we know better than God, that is the height, the height of pride and hubris. So we have to be really, really careful because um, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his, meaning Yahweh's throne. He is absolutely, unequivocally righteous and just. So divine justice is an essential attribute of God whereby he is infinitely and perfectly just. So God doesn't owe us fallen sinners anything more. He has given us all. Everything we have is from him. And probably not a good idea to talk too much about justice of God. And why is that? I think it's already been said. It's our standards of justice. That's right. But if, if God gave us no mercy or no grace, we'd all be going to hell. If it were not for his grace... We all, because we all deserve it, every last single one of us. And so that's why we praise him, because we're not. Um, and it was his sovereign choice. So the principle is the church, again, the church, are those saved by the will of God. Not the will of man, but the will of God. 
Um, in fact, you could go so far as if it was left up to the will of man, there would be no church. Right? No man seeketh after God. Right? So, and there's more. So, so what is the condition of the elect? So, we, so to those who are elect, they're exiles. Huh. Others' translations, maybe your translations say strangers, scattered, pilgrims, foreigners. So, um, sojourners, uh, later in the, in the book, it talks about um, being sojourners. So, the idea is the church is living in exile, not yet in the promised land with our heavenly citizenship taking precedent over our earthly loyalties. You can think of it another way. We're living in a foreign land, and we're this supernatural society within a society. So we're ambassadors for Christ, and what we're to do is to tell other men and women how they can be reconciled to God through Christ. So we're not friends of this world, but we want to reach this world, right? Being exiles. So anyway, then he talks about the dispersion. We'll go through this quickly. This is, again, Old Testament imagery, which is replete throughout the, the book of 1 Peter. Um, the dispersion or the diaspora, which is in Greek, and that happened in uh, 586 when Nebuchadnezzar ransacked um, the southern kingdom and deported all the Jews except for the poor, and he spread them out. And so Peter was a Jew, and so he's making this allusion, if you will, to um, what's happening there and making um, this connection to the church as he sees it. So the Christian Jews and the Christian Gentiles in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, he sees them scattered. So these are the Gentile churches in 64 to 67 AD. And it actually is the same area that we see in Acts chapter 2 after Pentecost. And we saw some 3,000 converts. So this is really the baby church. This is the beginning of the church um, is where he's writing here. So, so Peter is addressing the church in a spiritual sense who are scattered in an unregenerate world. So how long will they and how long will we be exiles? Great answer. So if Jesus comes back, but how then if so Jesus doesn't come back, he tarries. Yeah, he comes down and raptures the church. Or yeah. Die. Or we die. That's right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So so we're gonna be exiles till we die. I mean this is um this is it. Or the or Jesus comes back. So so what's so this is a, a very distinct Christian worldview, right? Um is that we are aliens. This this is not our home. This is we're, this is not the promised land for us. Um, we are we are looking for something much much greater. So the principle is the church is scattered aliens living in a foreign and hostile land, not our home. So, and it gets better if you can believe it. So the source of our election. So we're talking about our election, God's sovereign choice of us. According, verse 2, according to foreknowledge of God the Father. So, we got a bunch of Bible scholars in here. Um, what do you notice about this verse? It's not just the first portion, the whole portion of this verse. So, what do we see? What do we see? Okay, we got God the Father. Spirit. What's that called? So we see the Trinity. Wow. All right. So right away, if um, observing the text, that's the art and science of biblical interpretation, is the first thing you do is you observe the text. So the first thing we observe is that we have the Trinity in here. How about that? But then we start talking about what God, what is God's role in this? Foreknowledge. So foreknowledge is not foresight or mere cognition of a person right? Rather is to love. So to, the, to know someone in the Bible is to be intimate with somebody, right? And so to foreknow, it is to, you could say, love. So to love. 
Um, and so this intimacy, God with his people, is, is a very significant biblical concept. Um, so God, before they were, they and we were born, determined their and our destiny. So do we have something to give thanks for? To foreknow is to forelove and to set affections beforehand. Before, as MacArthur's quote said, even before creation. Um, when I was studying this years ago, it was like, wow, okay, wow. That's even before Adam and Eve, before even sin. But even before sin, before man and before creation. And so what a beautiful, amazing truth that we have here. Our Arminian friends would say what? Foreknowledge is where God looks down the corridors of time and wants to know, oh, there's Marty. He might, he might uh, pick me. Oh, there's Brock, maybe. Edward, oh, he's a holy guy. He's going to do it. Um, yeah, there's Cheryl, uh, you know. No, 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 no. No, God had foreloved us. He, God is not waiting around for us to make a decision. That is heresy, right? Right? Because if he was, we would never do it because we are stone cold dead in our sins. That is, that is total depravity. We are unable to choose God, right? Dead people don't make decisions because they're dead, right? So, um, <laughs> so foreknowledge is linked to a pre determined plan how about that so then we have i mean this is i don't know uh, the bible is awesome and um blessed be the god and father our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in christ with every spiritual blessing the word every in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. That is foreknowledge. So Christ, he was foreknown. That's the same word before the foundation of the world. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You, you crucified and killed by the hands of the law, lawless men. So this is all the foreknowledge of God, um, his plan. So eternity passed before Adam and Eve sinned, as we've already said, God planned the redemption of mankind. So what's the point? God foreloved the church. If you're in the church, is because he loved you before the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world. But yet there's more. So what is the sphere? What is the sphere of the elect? So... So the sphere of the elect is by the sanctification of the Spirit. So we were elect. God foreloved us before the beginning of time. And then we have the sanctification of the Spirit. So sanctification, there is two definitions of sanctification. There is progressive sanctification, which we often think of. That's where the Lord is growing you. It's after your conversion. He's growing you. You're, you're striving to conform to the image of Christ, to be more holy, to be holy, therefore, as our Father in heaven is holy. And sometimes that is gradual, and sometimes that, of course, can be even painful. But in view here, follow me on this, it's the definite um, sanctification. Election is invalid until the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. So think about that. Um, we are elect... But it's until the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit comes in our lives that he changes us, changes our relationship to sin, changes our relationship to Christ and God. Until that happens, we're not yet saved. So it's kind of like the question before. So could the elect be foreloved but not yet saved? Yeah, sorry, Marty, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's people out there have not yet been saved. Um, they just, they haven't yet. So, so, to be a believer, you must be born again. 
Jesus says you must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of heaven in John chapter 3. And there must be a conversion. There must be a rebirth. There must be a before and there must be an after. So when you give your testimony here at Harvest Bible Church, there has to be a before and after. And that experience is when the Holy Spirit intervenes. And so the, the salvi- this is the Holy Spirit salvific work. It's definite sanctification, a means to consecrate, to set apart, to make us holy. So is, the believer is forever changed, as I said before, in his relationship to sin. And sin no longer has its dominion over you. Unfortunately, it is still there in our relationship to God and eternity. So this is big. It's by the sanctification. It's by the sanctification of the Spirit. So it's a means of salvation and all that comes out of it. So you can think of it that way. It's a means of us becoming part of the church and all the blessings that come out of that. So 1 Corinthians 6.11, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God. So the church or exile set apart at conversion, not for perfection, but a progressively more holy, obedient lifestyle. Any questions on that? It does, it, it gets even better. I mean, for the obedience of Christ. So we were chosen by foreknowledge of God and sanctified by the Spirit. So, but the goal is obedience. So, obedience to Christ is a byproduct, if you think of it that way, of sanctification. God did not choose his own from the beginning of time, set his love upon them, set them uh, to be part of the church, to not be obedient. So, if we are elect... By the foreknowledge of God, we are, he foreloved us and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and we become a new creature in Christ, so to speak. We're going to obey his commands. And it's actually a contradiction to call yourself a Christian but not be obedient to his com- commands. That's commonly known as a carnal Christian. One who says that I am a Christian um, and I got this fire insurance but I'm going to live the way I want to live and I have no marks of, uh, of faith in my life. Um, and so that's something that can be very, very um, scary um, and treacherous, really. Um, so if you're not at least striving for obedience, you are defying the purpose of your election. So think about that. If you're not at least striving for it, the purpose of your election, define the purpose of the sanctifying work of the Spirit and define the purpose upon which you claim to be saved. So, how do we know we're the elect, church? I'm sorry? Yeah. There you go. Amen. Beautiful. Yeah, and you, you bear fruit, Marty, right? Hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Thanks, Zach. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not to be burdensome. That is absolutely Beautiful. Yeah, that's right. Um, some some other ideas um, along. Pardon me. Yes, ma'am. Let's. Heirs, heirs of God, and all heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
absolutely beautiful, right? Um, yeah, thank you. I mean, you, you know, we, we um, encourage you to read the Bible here at Harvest Bible Church um, because it changes your life. And it's, it is the best thing that you can do. Um, it changed my life, and I know it has changed most everybody in this room. And so, um, because it's God's love story to us. The doctrine of election is not, I don't know why, why people don't like it, but it's, it's out of God's love. And it's, it's absolutely, unequivocally beautiful. So anyway, what are some of the marks? Love the Word of God, it, that it teaches you, convicts you of sin, shatters your complacency, hunger for it, fuels your attitude towards prayer. Marty was mentioning that. Stewardship. Um, what do we do with our time, talent, and treasures? That you fear God? Do the unregenerate fear God? Unfortunately, not now. <laughs> Michael, yeah, there we go. Right? Excellent. And seek to serve and glorify him. So, but there's a problem. There's always problems, right? We fall in, This is a fallen world. So there, there's always a but. The but is, we don't live anywhere near perfect obedience to Christ. Let's get real. We're not even close. We are like pre-Pentecost Peter, right? He was weak. He was unfocused or focused on worldly things or other things. Um, things that were impure, maybe prideful motives or failed. Not necessarily Peter, but could be us. But the good, more good news, right, in this, uh, in this second verse Thankfully, there is the sprinkling of his blood. So we will take a look at that. But the principle here is God chose the church for the purpose of obedience to Jesus Christ. And, conjunctive there, for the sprinkling of his blood. So here our man Peter is hearkening back to the Old Testament sacrificial imagery of sprinkling of blood. Okay, so raise your hand if you've been reading Leviticus. Julie! Anybody else? It's actually a very, very good book. Um, but what is going on in Leviticus? That's right, Brock. Yes, absolutely. It, it's, uh, it's for the Levites and how the sacrificial system's going to work. And so the sprinkling of blood, it talks about sprinkling on the altar, and sprinkling by the priest. We have burnt offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. All of those things are for the atonement of sin. And so that's, that's what, what um, if you know your Old Testament, and that's Peter certainly does, and it's a partial Jewish audience, they know exactly what he's talking about, that this sprinkling blood is for the, the atonement. Um, and the, the blood... That's what it, it signifies. The life is in the blood. That's what Leviticus 17 talks about. And so, the sprinkling of the blood, we, um, we, see, we, we must notice the sequence that God chose you. He set his affection on you as the elect. He sanctified you, which basically means he set you apart by the Spirit to live a life unto obedience and sprinkling with his blood. Why? Because we're still sinners, right? Right? And we need it. And that's what the church is. The church, we recognize that we're sinners. This is a hospital for sinners. And so we need to sprinkle of blood during this earthly journey. And Jesus' blood cleanses us of our disobedience. 1 John, Zach was referencing 1 John earlier in that book. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus and the blood of Jesus cleanses us of all sin. So this is a remarkable view of atonement. So the emphasis in this, this two little verses is that it's uh, it, first of all, it's a powerful opening section of the book. I mean, he gets right after it, right into election, right? Um, incredible. Um, 
but not on the initial atonement of the shed blood of Christ on the cross for forgiveness of our sins so that we could stand before uh, God justified. That propitiation, the appeasement of God's wrath at that point. No, but this is talking about the ongoing need for cleansing after being set apart. This is, again, this book is for who? The world? No, for believers. It's for the church, the elect, right? After we have been set apart. So the principle, the church is imperfect. Amen? We see that when we study the history of the church, right? A lot of imperfection going on. But yet we recognize the need to be cleansed of our guilt through the sprinkling of the blood of Christ again and again and again, right? God's mercies are new every morning. That's the church. We ask for forgiveness. We know we're sinners. We know we're disobedient. And the closer we get to Christ, the, the more we realize how far we are away from Christ, said it before, but R.C. Sproul said we're, we're closer to Adolf Hitler than we are to Jesus Christ, right? That's the, it, it's, it, it's enormous, but through him and through his shed blood, the sprinkling of his blood, we can be cleansed and renewed and be in communion back with him, praise God. And there's more. May grace and peace, that peace is shalom, be multiplied to you. And uh, the other translations are abundance or full measure. Um, this, is, um, this is, again, beautiful. I, I don't know what other adjective, but the fact that um, he's given this doctrine of what it is to be the church. And if you are the church, and um, if you have been saved, if you have not been saved, come see me. We can talk about it, right? We have other people that you can talk to, right? The time is now, right? And this is the best thing. Nothing else is even close. That grace and peace can be multiplied when, these are some of my notes, humbly adhering to the apostolic teaching. So the church, if you're part of the church, You're going to have grace and you're going to have peace and you're also going to adhere to the apostolic teachings. You're also going to be humbly rejoicing in the sovereign grace of God, the sovereignty of God. When you you come to the point where you realize when you're reading the Bible, it's about the sovereignty of God. That's what it's all about from start to finish. God is in charge. There's no maverick molecules, as R.C. Sproul once said, right? We have sin, because of us, not because of him. And we sin, and God uses even that sin for a purpose. And that purpose could be that God is going to, in the end, destroy all sin. And that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no presence of sin, praise God. Right? So anyway, uh, our grace and peace is multiplied when we humbly rest in our salvation and realize we had nothing to do with it. Nothing. We didn't add anything but our sin. That's what we added. Right? So, humbly giving testimony for the sanctifying work of conversion in our life. That um, the Holy Spirit interceded in our lives to radically change us in our relationship to sin and our relationship to God and our relationship to where we're going after we die, as Lance had talked about this week, it's that heaven's real and hell's real, right? And it's, it's a binary thing. It's one or the other, right? And then humbly realizing, if we weren't chosen, we'd be destroyed. And then humbly persevering as our hope lies elsewhere. Our hope lies in Christ. Our hope lies um, in the faith that we have in the object of our faith, which is, which is Christ. And then humbly obeying. To obey, it is a privilege to be his, 
It is a privilege to obey and a privilege and also our duty. We are, this is what we're called to do, to please God by obeying. And then humbly repenting, turning away that that 180 degree turn as we are in need of cleansing for our disobedience time and time and time again. And then humbly praising, God made us part of his church. And I can tell you, God being made us part of this church is not by hap- chance or happenstance that we're here. It's not by chance or happenstance that we're part of God's church here at Harvest Bible Church. And this is a special place, folks. If you've been in our Sunday school class, I say it all the time. This is like this diamond in the rough here in uh, Cypress, Texas, that we preach the Word of God, unadulterated Word of God, the apostolic teachings of uh, the Bible, and it's the foundation of our faith, and we will not equivocate. So um, that's First Peter, verse 1 and 2, and... Um, look, it wasn't 7.15 when we let out. <laughs> so think of it this way, right? Your family is what you were born into. The church, and you can think of Harvest Bible Church, is what you were born again into. Because you cannot be part of the church if you are not born again, okay? All right, well, um, thank you for coming. Let us, let us pray and we'll close. Heavenly Father, um, we love you, and um, we thank you for this beautiful text, and you did it all, um, and you were sovereign, you were in control, and you loved us before the beginning of time, and our minds can barely even fathom, but you did that, and we praise you for the conversion of every soul in this room and anyone listening, um, that you change them, that they are born again, they are set apart, that they are holy. And, Father, we praise you for that. And if there's anybody listening that's not, Father, work in their hearts. Change them so that they, too, can be in the church, that they, too, can be part of your elect. And, Father, help us with our obedience. Forgive us when we're disobedient. We're wayward. We're thinking of things the wrong way. We waver. We're sometimes confused. But, Father, may we rely on you. And we thank you for the fact that you will sprinkle your blood on us and atone us for our sins so we can be back in communion with you. Father, we love you. We pray for those who could not be here. We thank you, Father, for our pastor, Lance. We pray that he's getting rest and having a great time um, with his friends. Father, we give you all glory and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.